what I try to do on joust, I always used to lose on joust. And there's a German blocker. He was so good at just grabbing the ball like this, holding it, and then he would bring it onto his side. I grabbed that from him. And so every once in a while, I'll grab that ball. And usually I try to play it to myself, but maybe in that situation, I played it to Nick somehow. <laughs> that was another example of me looking at you like, he's just on a different planet in terms of skill and knowledge of the game. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Better at Beach Volleyball podcast. My name is Mark Burrick. Here at Better at Beach, we run vacations, camps, clinics, classes, online courses, and mentoring for anybody who wants to improve their game, fitness level, nutrition, or just skills in beach volleyball. And I don't want to spend a long time on our intro because today we have a short time with a really cool, really special guest. He is one of, if not the best beach volleyball player to have ever graced the sand. And I want to hear how he reacts when he hears that. But thank you, everybody, for attending. We are doing a live meeting today with the players in our complete player program. So the players in our complete player program are going to be able to ask questions of Phil live as part of one of our two weekly meetings where we review game footage practice and they seek advice and coaching. So without further ado, Phil Dauhauser, welcome to the show. What's up? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. So what's your like kind of initial reaction when people call you the GOAT? I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to like make you blush, but I, I want to know what it actually, you know, f- feels like or, or what feelings you get. You kind of I'm already getting all uncomfortable, like itchy and, you know, <laughs> you know, obviously it's a huge honor. I will say you could put me in the discussion as one of the best ever, but I think there's a dude from Norway right, right now that's playing better ball than I ever have. That team's revolutionizing the game and he's like blocking three balls a set, which is insane. Before that... It was either me or Alson somewhere on uh, the top at like 2.4. So he's like shattering blocking stats. Don't want to make the show about Andy because he's tremendous. But what did he change? What did he come along and do so differently? Was he just, it's hard to say that he, he might be just another level of athlete. Like, yeah, 6'9", 6'10", and able to, to move very athletically agile and everything. But what do you think was the difference maker that is or does set him apart. And I know that a lot of federations, I know USA specifically, like looks at Andy's game and said, hmm, we're going to apply what he's applying. So could you just discuss a little bit on what he did so differently? Well, he's actually a smaller blocker. Believe it or not, he's like six, seven, you know, in the world tour, that's like probably on the smaller end, but he's got kind of short legs and a really long torso. Right. So he can get super low in his block load. So then as a hitter, he's out of your sight. Right. And then he's so powerful. He could get up in the zone, your hitting zone. And he's got really long arms, strong hands. And he's like really like flexible to the side like <laughs> that. And he takes up so much air at the court because of all that. And it's really kind of impressive to watch. Was he the first one trying these like waves and hands extremely outside your uh, body blocking? Because I remember Jake was doing it Ricardo. against me and knocking me out with like hand plays, but that was before I even yeah. knew what was happening to me. I thought I was just getting worked. Yeah. 
I would say uh, the original guy was probably Witty. Okay. And then Ricardo. And then I guess I would be next. But I was kind of going with one hand rather than like the windshield wiper, two hands. And then Al Song is probably the next guy in line uh, that was making those moves. I was always looking at your block, at least early on, like the first 15 years, as really structured and big. Were you, during the early parts of your career and, and the middle of your career, focused more on perfect positioning and staying stable and taking up space with your hands? Or were you trying to use individual hand placement and move them a lot? When Todd and I played, I mean, we probably blocked line nine out of 10 times, maybe even higher than that. And I would just show the hitter I'm in the line and then kind of read the hitter and reach into the angle if I thought he was you know, going to hit angle. And Todd was always like, hey, man, it's way easier to get a point if you stuff block a dude rather than me digging the hard driven and then you having to set a high spinny ball and then me siding out or putting the ball away. So I was like, all right. So he kind of gave me free reign there. And then if I didn't block the ball, he would let me know what I did wrong every single play. <laughs> Every single play. That's <laughs> <laughs> well, nice to have some feedback, you know? Yeah. <laughs> was, That's a, a good way to say it. A nice, a nice way to say it. <laughs> was Nick, before you moved to Todd, was Nick like as chirpy or vocal behind you in telling you kind of like where you should be? Or was it more celebratory we're just working through this together for me and hudson like we butted heads on several ideas but then we also came to some great conclusions right right so um yeah. we weren't too argumentative it was more like oh, i hate that you're doing this but let's come to a conclusion so what was it like right. with nick nick was chirpy all the time to everyone across the net to me he's really calmed down over the years so i gotta give him credit but yeah he definitely i don't know i wonder if it's just like a defensive defender mentality like they're seeing the whole play, right? Like everything's in front of them. Mm. And maybe they're seeing it a little more clear than the blocker. Maybe it's just like little guys like to chirp at their big guys. I don't, you know, I don't know. <laughs> just a little bit noisier yeah. back there. Yeah, it does feel like you can see things. But how often were you thinking as a player that somebody behind you should have done something different at a moment? Like, were you ever giving anybody you know, Todd, John, Nick, anybody saying like, man, you got to stay wider or like just cover the seam and, and play for shots and I'll go a little bit more eagle. Were you giving them sort of feedback on, on misplays or was it usually a little more one way? Todd and I were usually on the same page. We both kind of saw the game in a similar light, just kind of playing the odds. And maybe Todd taught me that. I don't really remember because it was so long ago. But so like, for example, if the ball was seven, eight feet off the net, I would slide over to my, my line and deal with the line. He would slide a little meat middle, you know, and give anyone anything sharp. Uh, but the game was a little bit smaller back then. Now guys are seven, eight feet off. But it's like, that's their sweet spot. You know, their sweet spot is like 10 feet off. So it was, it was a little bit of a different game back then. Now you play the Dutch guys, they're just crushing balls. Do you think that more players, let's, let's talk about like maybe the girls that you're coaching at Phil Dahlhauser Beach Volleyball Academy, right? Yeah. Where do you ask your junior players and should it be different for any adults at like the BAAA level? Where do you think they should be setting the ball to be successful, like a distance from the net? I try to get them like four or five feet off the net 
where they want to set, especially the better players, they want to set like a little tighter because they want to hit, of course. But I'm like, I like you. You'll be better off four or five feet off. Okay, nice. And you think that's just because a bigger blocker would take more control, or do you think of the risk of oversets? Well, especially with the boys, they want to hit down, right? And I'm trying to teach them to hit up and through the ball, and they're not going to do that if they're two feet off the net. <laughs> I've seen that. I've seen the old yeah. grip and rip and then slam down to tape right. balls. Yeah. When you say yeah, exactly, when you say swing up, could you kind of dig into that a little bit, like what you feel or what you mean when you say that? Sure. Like instead of hitting on top of the ball, right? Like most people probably should hit a little bit underneath it, right? And then come over, and that's the snap, right? So it's up and through the ball, and then the snap creates that top spin and spins the ball into the court or down into the court. Okay. So instead of I guess, do you have to take the ball behind you, straight above you, slightly in front of you? No, like, do that. still right in front of you. Just a little, I mean, I'm talking like the bottom panel. If your palm was on the bottom panel. Mm. I never heard that before until Jason Lockett, our coach. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, dude, of course you got to hit up first, <laughs> you know? Because he was like, if you don't know Jason, he's like 5'10". He says 5'10". I'm going to call BS on that. But he still played but, on the world tour and still coached. What you know? He was yeah, he was a good player. But then I started thinking like, well, what if I started hitting more up like that, and then rather than down, and then I could hit that deep one, high, that high deep one, and really kind of it worked. I hate to say it, but it worked. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to hit either extreme angle or straight down line. But then I got stuck every once in a while. Yeah. You know, I remember, I don't know why I have this like kind of vision in my head. I'm watching you and Nick warm up with Jason on one of the off courts. And I just remember very specifically seeing him, you know, chip balls in. And then when you came in to hit, you were just hitting the half court sidelines, just pinging those spots. Do you have favorite spots or, or spots that you just had to master over time? And do you think that a shorter or less skilled players should try to match those same spots or should they come up with their own? No, I'm six, nine and I jump pretty well for a tall guy. Mm. So like I could hit angles that most people can't. I think I'm very conservative as a coach, I guess. And I say, figure out how to hit last meter of the court pretty consistently, right? Make the team, make the play. And then that'll hopefully, well, actually I should say, Hopefully the defender doesn't adjust to that, but if he does adjust to it, then you got like a nice little easy cut shot available. That's kind of what I'm coaching, but I'm also, I don't have any six, nine guys out there or like six, three girls, you know, mm-hmm. who could maybe hit that sharp angle pretty consistently and not make errors. Okay. So a different size, maybe even a different skill set. try to find what works, but in general, that buzz cut, that high flat, deep rip kind yeah. of i mean we had sam pedlo on a while back and he mm. was just like yeah i'll hit a couple sharp but then it's all just high hard deep corner and right. to me that always seemed kind of generic because then when you're playing against like try he hits that a few times but then he'll also hit that sharp cross angle right. a lot and he's bouncing balls in front of you so as a defender you got to make that quick late choice of all right let me go outside and grab that or let me stay a little bit deeper and see if i can play this one yeah 
I think guys will make more errors in the sharp in general, right? But if a guy is feeling it, you know, and he's hitting 12, 13 foot line consistently, you're going to probably have to take a step into there, into that angle at some point, right? Yeah. Do you think that all BA AA players and your juniors, should you guys be blocking line slash seam line as much as you and, and Todd did, where you're saying like nine out of 10, is that an, a good idea for most people? Or do you think more teams should be switching up their calls to stop certain things? Well, I guess it really depends on the hitter. Mm. But most of the time, they're peeling, right? On the women's side anyway. Mm-hmm. But on the men's side, like, I mean, if you've practiced blocking, making blocking moves, then I would say try to set up the hitter, right? Into thinking you're blocking line. Like, you know, it's the chess match, right? That's what I love about beach volleyball is the chess match. You know, you start off blocking line, show the hitter a line block, and then you show them that same block, but then quickly jump into the angle and maybe you get a block or two that way. And then at that point, you're kind of messing with the hitter, right? Especially if you get him, then the kind of the ball is in your court and you're trying to bait him into to bait him into hitting what you want. Mm. Right. Do you go into a point by point mental process there? Or are you kind of choosing like a three point or a four point setup? You know, when we had Campbell on, he was discussing like Troy and Chase's different mentality, where Chase is like, get points right now. And Troy is more. I'm going to get the point in like three or four points. Like that's how we'll set them up over time. Right. So how many points does your setup to make a hitter feel comfortable? And then you decide to, to jump in and steal one at how long do you specifically wait? Or is it more of a feeling in that moment? I don't know if there's a right answer to that. Really good question. I would probably say I'm setting up a dude three or four points down the road, especially on a guy that likes that slappy line, a low slappy line, Right. I'll look, go for his tie line and I'll hit it off my elbow. I'm like, okay. And then a couple points down the road, I'll show him late block, line block, and then kind of give it like, I don't know, a 60% jump. So I'm just blocking that low line. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it's not. There's so many guys are out there that are so good that will recognize that. They'll just swing high off the top, you know. But sometimes I'll get guys on that. Usually that's like a defender block, like a Taylor Crab, the Polish, I like to call him the Polish Todd Rogers, Fijalek. Yeah. He loves hitting that like a little sloppy line against me. Yeah. I felt when we played against each other a few times, I felt like you covered that shot better than any other blocker because usually against taller guys who, who or people who can jump, you can kind of almost get them to reach up, delay, and then chip it right yeah. under. And that might have worked yeah. once on you, but I was like, why is he blocking down there? How is he still getting this shot when, when he's that high? And it's interesting to understand that you're using a half jump or a 60% jump to actually make sure that you cover that instead of the high line once, once somebody gets comfortable doing it. Listen, I've definitely been like, you know, uh, flags in the wind up, up there, you know, and just getting chiseled. So chiseled over the years, you know, you kind of learn your lesson and hopefully you learn it sooner than later. In Chicago, did you cheat on center court against me? There was a play. I cheat. I think it's you possible. Cheated. Yeah, I think you cheated. We jousted, and I felt your hands around the ball, and me kind of barely pushing. Oh yeah. And I then cheated. I think you threw it back to to Nick, 
like after holding on to it. And I was like, he could have dumped it after that. But did you grab it and throw it back to Nick? What I try to do on joust, because I always lose, I always used to lose on joust. And there's a German blocker named Jonas Reckerman, one gold in 2012. He was so good at just grabbing the ball like this, holding it. And then he would bring it onto his side. Get you know, touches. Controlled, yeah. So I grabbed that from him. And so every once in a while, I'll grab that ball. And usually I try to play it to myself. Mm. But maybe in that situation, I played it to Nick somehow. <laughs> he threw it like back three quarters. And I was like, in the moment, I was like, did that, did what I felt just happen actually happen? <laughs> and that was another example of me looking at you like, it's just, he's just on a different planet in terms of skill and knowledge of the game. You know, like that, well, to, to experience that play and be like, Jesus. Well, I had the privilege to play on the world tour where there are so many talented players. Mm-hmm. And I would kind of just sit around and watch a little bit and try to pick up some things from, um, you know, some of the top players or even playing against them. I'd be like, dang, that was a good play. I'm going to try that one time. You know, it's like you've seen it enough. It gets into your subconscious and then you just do it without even thinking. Right. Mm-hmm. Who do you think you stole or learned plays other than recommend like that's like one specific one that you remember. And, and I agree. I think more people maybe at the pro level, I'm not sure about the amateur level, but it's better to lose a joust under control than to like, yeah, win win the muscle match, but now they've got two or three touches and then, you know, then you got to deal with a hit. So I like the push. And then recover. I felt like I got decent at that from indoor just because I was getting blocked so much. I was great at covering myself. (laughs) Yeah. So I think more people can learn to push, let go and play. I think that would be an important micro scenario for people to pick up. But what other players did you learn from and what moves of theirs do you think you stole? Just like one or two. Well, when I started on the world tour, Ricardo was like the guy. Him and Emmanuel were winning everything. So I would watch him. And I'd watch how he kind of set himself up on blocks and, and things like that. And then, but yeah, say, but to me, he was so different than you, right? Like yeah. Ricardo has this step back swat, you know, like he'll like yeah. literally take a giant step off the net and maybe half jump and then just like basketball kind of rebound, throw some things. But that I've seen Avery do that, but not to the exaggerated point that Ricardo just stands and no. lots flies. No, I didn't. I didn't pick that up more. Just the way he kind of set up himself, where he lined up, I should say, mm-hmm. and then uh, made a move from there. Is kind how of where did, I, how did he line up? Well, he would always line up kind of head on ball, like a neutral position. Okay. And then he would just be low and over into the angle outside his body or down the line, you know. And then that would open up kind of the deep middle hit. Right, like right over his head because he'd be like this. And then he would kind of wait for that. And then he'd stick his whatever, his inside hand on that ball. And then he'd start stuffing that ball. Mm. Do you think that that's a wise position for like a 6'3", a six-foot blocker, somebody who's up there? Should they be doing the active hands? Because we did one of the posts on Instagram that was like kind of a, a funny post. But I was like, stop watching Andy Mole to learn how to block. Because, and similar, it could have been about you. We could do the exact same post, like stop learning to play from Phil Dahlhauser because he's going to have a different skill set and ability than you. Yeah. 
So do you think that that head on ball and hands outside works well or could work for a shorter blocker? I think the head on ball setting up there and then making a low move with a step mm. rather than outside, uh, outside your body with your hands. Okay. Um, like I think try is a really, really good blocker for, for a size. And he's like, well, I guess he's six, five. So that's you know pretty good size, but he's so good at moving low along the net. And then, and then he makes quick moves into the zone and he's so good at just sealing whatever he's blocking. I don't think you got to have long arms to reach outside your body. Right. Mm. I think like uh, Bill Kalinsky is one of those guys who's his, his footwork to me is yeah. really comparable to try like how much tiny shuffle step action he does yeah. um, and how low he stays for so long that like, you don't see big body leans. I think a lot of amateur blockers, you can, when they drop down, you already see yeah. their torso the leaning yeah. and that's tough, but Bill and try, I think their, their torso stays kind of right above their feet and then they float instead of angle jump. Yeah. Is any of that stuff that you focused on, like having your torso centered yeah, you above your feet, anything like that? So if you're a shoulder leaner, mm-hmm. right. If that's how you feel comfortable blocking, that's fine because all right, you're going to, it's dead giveaway, but you could use that to your advantage. You could give it shoulder lean into the angle and then go back to the line. Right. So you could kind you of have to know that about yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's, yeah. With video or someone telling you, but I would suggest not to do the shoulder lean. Every once in a while, I'll kind of see if it works against a hitter. I'll act like and block an angle and then go back to the line. You know, do that with a little shoulder lean. But usually I try to go straight up and then outside my body or like one hand outside my body. When we talk about that difference between you, Try, Andy, when I study film, I'm looking, you're getting into maybe a half squat, right? Like 90 degree mm, bend. Yeah. And these guys are ass to grass, like dropping yeah. down inside their knees super yeah. wide. And I have my thoughts on what different people need based on their bodies. But is that something that you ever considered dropping down that far? Or did you just figure it wasn't for you? It wasn't valuable enough. Do you not have the mobility in your bone structure? What's taught me through like the depth of your block. Definitely something I've thought of, you know, everyone says lower, the better, but like when you have femurs that are like four feet long, you know, <laughs> it's a little tougher to get down there. So I would say, usually I always say there's like two types of jumpers, right? There's guys that kind of bounce out of their load, right? And then there's guys that are just powerful that could sit down there for three seconds and still get enough power out of there, you know, be big enough. I'm definitely the first type of jumper. And so I think you find out the type of jumper you are and then where that sweet spot is in your load. And, and usually if you squat and wherever you're dropping down to your, where you squat, that's probably your sweet spot mm. in most scenarios, right? Unless you do some mobility and you could get a little lower, but that takes a lot of time and effort. Is there a test that somebody could, as soon as yeah. they get out of the car or whatever, and they listen to right now yeah. to tell myself, man, I should be a deep jumper or I should be like a 90 degree jumper how would I figure that out about myself if I wanted to know how deep I should get when I block? I think that's just, you go out there and try to figure out 
where you're comfortable, like, you know, in your warm up, go out to the net and take a couple of de different depths, jump from a couple of different depths. It's a little bit of a tongue twister and see where you're most comfortable and then kind of go from there. And, you know, doing it one time is not going to give you your answer. You're going to have to do it multiple times. Sure. Like on multiple days, you know, because every day is a little different. That's a pretty good point. You know, I think the speed of the drop helps some people because like having the plyometric effect. I know when I was playing with Brandon, he pauses a lot in that half squat and then he yeah. jumps. But when we got him to stay a little bit taller and then do a quick drop and then go yeah. up, he was jumping way bigger. When we yeah. got him to get really low quickly... He got high, but then he, it ended up where we were like so off balance and out of position. So sometimes when you drop too low, you find yourself more out of position, but then you're also balancing that with like, you're now you're bigger over the net. So does the extra three inches, you know, which do you choose? Do you want to be laterally perfect or would you rather be further over the net? And I think people can go out to nets and they can test speed of their butt drop and see how high they're touching depth of their butt drop. And if you kind of play with those things, there's a real opportunity to, to understand when you're going to be at your best. But then when you're sore, you're going through the season, you're in practice, sometimes going deep down into that, yeah, into that block jump is like, man, I don't want to do this one today. I'll just do the quick jumps. <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah, it's kind of trial and error, right? Yeah. Like I would probably say you're better off being a little more balanced, maybe being, an inch lower, you're going to probably get more blocks that way than being bigger because you could be eight feet tall with whatever 10 foot wingspan. And if you're not good with your feet and you're like, you know, way out in the line and the set is, I mean, way out by the antenna and the set is inside. It doesn't matter how long your arms are, how tall a hitter is going to see that and just smash angle. Mm. I want to talk a little bit about the way that you approach the game. I know we talked off camera about mentality. So everybody for a long, 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 long time has recognized you as one of the best blockers and one of the best setters, right? When you look at yourself, what do you think you do intangibly better than the people around you, than your peers? Is it the stuff at home? Is it film work? Is it game planning, staying mentally steady? What do you think other than setting and blocking that you pride yourself on and think you do pretty well? I think the most important thing you said out of that those examples was probably mentally steady. I think it was Luke Gehrig. I think it was Luke Gehrig that said, or maybe Joe DiMaggio. I don't know. One of the old baseball players said that sports is 90% mental and 30% physical or something. He got all the numbers wrong, you know, but I really believe that like, if your mind's not in it, then you're just not going to be very good that day. And I've been there and I've gotten the poopy pants award at an AVP thing for the last <laughs> two or three times, you know, because I'm always poopy pants on the court. And it's days where you're like, want to sweat today. I don't want to side out or whatever it is. Those are the days where you grind through. And if you get a win on those days and you're like, that was tough, but uh, very re rewarding. So on the, the crappy days that you could like grind through and like make it through the day, I think those are big wins your mentality you know when you're out there and you don't feel confident and you don't feel like playing maybe or your body or your mind or your stressors outside whatever marriage kids job are yeah. preventing you from like really caring about full speed 
what do you think people should tell themselves when they're in that grind mentality? You know, sometimes we start training in December or January. And by the time it's like June it, at the pro level, you're almost burnt out. Yeah. yeah. What do you tell yourself? What do you think people could tell themselves when the rest of their lives and volleyball is burning them out a little bit to the point where they, they're almost not wanting to show up? Well, I've definitely been there and it's really just staying in the present moment. Right. Like, and what I mean by that is like, just try to get out of your head because your mind is a lot of time can be your enemy. Right. You know, say you got a hurt knee and all you think about is your knee. And if you keep focusing on your knee, your knee's going to hurt way more than it really does. Right. It like kind of snowballs. And then you're like, Oh, my knees hurt. This sucks. You know, like you go down that road and if you could just stop that as soon as you notice it and just be like, okay, my knee hurts big deal. Like this is not the first time let's focus on something that feels good. How about my shoulder? Oh, my shoulder feels pretty good. And then whatever puts you in the present moment, if it's feeling the sand in between your toes or feeling your breath, you know, focusing on your breath, just as long as you're out of your mind and just reacting to what's happening in front of you, you're going to be better off. And I've learned that just through being in all different types of situations, knee hurting, neck hurting, whatever back or torn. Uh, <laughs> missing home, you know, missing the kids and the wife don't want to be out in China eating rice and the beans I brought, you know, butter from uh, a, from a jar that you had to pack. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, you know, I may sound like a, a spoiled athlete or whatever, but there are times where you're like, man, I just, the only thing I want to do right now is be home. Mm-hmm. And if you let that thought grow a little bit, you know, grow some roots and that takes a large part of your brain, then it's going to be tough to focus on the task at hand. Mm-hmm. I always looked at guys like you and Jake as I was coming up and I was just you know, I got like these little tweaks, little injuries, my shoulder would start hurting, or I think we've all felt this, like my legs felt good, but my upper body and my arms felt kind of gooey. <laughs> like I couldn't get like any crispness out of it. And I was like, Oh no, yeah. you know, my body's not feeling like it should. It's not feeling perfect. Right. And I kept looking at you and, and Jake and going, man, how do these guys always feel perfect? And then I saw you win with a torn abs. I saw, you know, Jake win without looking forward once because he had the flu in like uh, Seattle. And I go, Oh man, I was way off because everybody does not feel perfect. Like everybody's hurting in some way, mentally, emotionally, or physically. Everybody doesn't feel extremely perfect or at all perfect on any tournament or practice day. Right. But those are the people who say, this is what my body's got today. Cool. Now it's time to play and focus on winning, not how my upper body, my lower body, how tight it is, how loose it is. Yeah. You just, you play with what you're working with that day, you know, maybe dead legs, maybe a noodle arm, whatever, you know, Oh, noodle arm. Sweet. I could work on my shots today. I could work on my short serve today. You know, there's always a, a silver lining, right? So is that what you do in your mind? Then do you take like a scan of your body? on that day or do you take a scan of your mind and then say what do you say at that moment to then start competing at your best and to get your mind right 
Is there something specifically that you tell yourself, a mantra, a meditation, something you listen to? Well, I've gotten into meditation probably like around six or seven years ago, maybe a little less, five, six years ago. I don't remember. Hmm. But the way I was even aware, I always thought meditation was for like hippies, you know? And I read Tim Ferriss's Tools of Titans. Yeah, I got that book. Yeah. Yeah. And basically it's interviews of super successful people, right? And I don't know, I would say maybe 75, 80% of those people all had some sort of meditation practice. And I was like, hmm, maybe there's something behind this meditation. So then I kind of started messing around with it. And like, there's so many YouTube videos and things. So I think meditation is huge, not only for on the court, but just life in general, because we're running on autopilot, like where our subconscious mind is basically running our lives, right? We do the same thing every day, same thoughts every day. You ever drive down the street, down the highway, and you're like, I've just drove 10 minutes and I don't really remember doing anything right i like ending up in the wrong place when you're driving and you end up there and you're like that's not where i was going (laughs) yeah yeah so that's just like your subconscious mind you know like uh running things so to be aware of what's going on in between your ears is so valuable you know on and off the court do you have any videos or or apps that you recommend that is like an easy starter for people i always recommend headspace i think that's a great one yeah i really like joe dispenza Dr. Joe Spence, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's more into, his story is incredible, but that's for another show. But he has a lot of guided meditations on YouTube and he's a little out there. But I also like Eckhart Tolle, who has like guided, I mean, not really guided meditations, but like just kind of suggestions. Nice. All right. So some good tools there. People can yeah. check out as we're going. We don't have too much. Longer. You got to be out at 45. Is that right? Yeah. I got to pick up the kids. Okay. So then we're going to do a couple cool things. Cause I want to tell people about, first of all, your opportunities, cause you're running Phil the Hauser beach volleyball Academy. So now you have your own club in Florida. Do you invite other clubs? Do you invite players to you? Is it just your juniors in your area? How does that work? And then you have to tell us about your camp with April coming up in October. Okay. So yeah, we got a little club in Orlando. Uh, I wouldn't exactly call it a club. It's more like classes. I'm really kind of anti indoor club model Mm. because these kids are locked in for six months playing the same sport and they wonder why they have shoulder problems at 15, 16 years old, you know? So we kind of set up a way where you just buy classes, like a package of classes and Maybe eventually we'll get a club going if we have like a group of like really athletes that like want to go to the next level, then maybe we'll all think about starting up a club. But right now it's just classes and like adult leagues. You know? Like that. Yeah. It's a and good then, model. It's uh, more fun. Right. I mean, yeah. to be able to like show up and be like, yeah, I'm going to do pass. And we did the same thing in Hermosa where we started these classes and it's no, we're not trying to take you to tournaments. We're not guiding you there. It's you can go play if you want, but while yeah. you're here, we're going to train you. We're going to show you how to play and we're going to have some fun. So I love the model that you guys are using. And I don't know, it's always scary to think about going into that club realm and everything that comes with it and the drama and and the parents and politics and stuff. I don't want any part of it. (laughs) Yeah. I like that. You said it perfectly. There's no drama. We just come play a little volleyball. We have fun. If you want to play tournaments, there's a tournament almost every weekend in Florida 
I'll point you to the right direction. And that's kind of how it works. Nice. And you and April teaming up for yeah. A so April and I have gotten together and kind of what similar light what you're doing with adults is like you want to level up your game. You know, come to either we have options, all kinds types of options, different classes. We have a four day camp, and it's two weeks, October, October 10th through the 23rd in Santa Monica. Obviously, it would have been nice being Hermosa, Manhattan, but as you know, it's it's expensive there. Yeah. <laughs> Santa Monica is a little uh, more affordable, and it's all a la carte. You kind of pick and choose on, on what you wanna what you wanna work on, or if you could, you could go to the four day camp. Is that for and adults and kids or just kids or we, it's mostly geared towards adults. Cool. And there are two junior classes. Awesome. The juniors, like everyone, juniors have a ton of opportunity, right? And yeah. honestly, a 15 year old girl probably doesn't know who I am, but you know, a 35 year old guy probably knows who I am. Like, well, the point is, is like they'll, appreciate the experience experience a little more i think i like we'll see what happens maybe maybe one day we'll convince you to to come out to a a better at beach camp when we're across the coast in florida all right yeah that'd be nice (laughs) well all right so we got to sprint through this and and i know that we only have 11 minutes left but for our Complete player program members, guys, if you want to sign up for betterbeach.com, we have a complete player program, which means that we have courses that you can take yourself through. And then we have a coaching program where you take the courses, but you take it with our team. It's treat us as if we're a pro coaching staff or an NCAA coaching staff. And we're taking you through different skills, different courses, piece by piece. You post your videos in our private Facebook group and we go in there and we coach you on your technique and on your strategy. And we also have two meetings like this per week. Now, this is a very special case for our players because we got Phil as our guest. So for our members right now, we're going to have the opportunity for our complete player program members to ask Phil any questions live. So complete player program members, as you're sitting there right now, if you have a question, raise your hand, I'll say your name, and then you're going to turn your mic on and you get the opportunity to to ask Phil uh, one of your big questions. And I'm going to start off with Rodolfo. Is that right? Yeah. Rudy, let's go, baby. What books are you currently reading? If you're reading anything right now, or have you recently read in the past that helped you with anything with your volleyball skills? Right now I'm reading two books, Think and Grow Rich. I mean, it's number, I think I'm reading, read that five or six times, classic. Is it going to help your volleyball? I can't hurt, I guess. Uh, yeah. And then another book called uh, Getting Things Done, which I don't think it will help your volleyball. That's nice. awesome. All right. Rudy's That's at awesome. it. And then you played at UCF, is that correct? Yeah. Uh, I'm just curious, well, you played yeah, at, you play at UCF at all? Indoor club. And then we had, there was four beach courts on campus. And I was there like every day. Basically. Nice. I never saw <laughs> you there, darn. I missed you. <laughs> <laughs> you had your chance to partner up, Rudy. You just had to show up on the right day. <laughs> I missed it. <laughs> wow. Thank you. Cool. Sure. Thanks, Rudy. Jack, go ahead. Hey, uh, Jack here. Okay, I have actually a question. And by the way, amazing, amazing tips so far. It will be really good for the defense. 
I have a question which is uh, not directly related with the blocking. It's actually from a friend of mine. And he asked if you recall a particular game that you had with Todd, where you, uh, I think Todd serve received with the fingers and directly yeah. attacked. Is this something that, uh, how come, I think it was very successful and how come no one else does it? Do you recall? He passed the ball with his hands? Uh, you serve received the ball with the hands. So I did or he did? He did. Yeah. I, he did, that, he did that, I remember twice. One time he got called, and then the other time he did not. But Todd had really good hands, and even for a guy like that, it's pretty risky. Mm -hmm. Pretty risky. So not recommended. <laughs> no. Okay. No, no, no. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, so my question is, what do you think the biggest thing that you've learned about yourself nutrition-wise since when you started to now, later in your career? Like, what are some of the most important things you think you've learned or some, something you wish you had learned earlier on? Uh, that I can answer. I um, Lately, I've been kind of following these biohacker guys like Dave Asprey and this guy, Carnivore MD. And they only eat grass-fed beef and like whatever, and fruits and veggies. Well, Carnivore MD just does straight fruit and grass-fed beef and grass-fed beef fat. And so I've kind of been messing with that. And I found like a local farm in Orlando. And man, like I've lost probably like five pounds of bad weight. Not that there's much bad weight on me. And I feel pretty good. And I feel like I'm supporting the local farmer, you know, instead of like industrial farms. And so I wish I would have gotten that on the grass fed beef a little earlier in my career. Yeah. Awesome. So I'll follow up. Do you, you're not one of the ones who think that's like a vegan diet. It worked for you or more, more vegetables and stuff. I, for me, I, I saw a lot of inflammation go down and I was recovering quite well like the two to three months that I switched to vegan, it was just really difficult to maintain socially, you know, to go yeah. out and always ask for sides of vegetables. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of good things about being a vegan, but along the same lines with this grass fed beef, like you go out to the restaurant, they don't, you know, most of the places don't have grass fed beef. And same thing with being vegan, like try being vegan in, you know, Germany, where it's like bratwurst and sauce, you know, uh, like it's really hard. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I like, I'm from, I'm a German descent. So I love German food and like schnitzel and, you know, like, so it'd be tough for me to travel and be vegan. Uh, I have a question from Casilla. She wants to know when you go to practice or when you went slash go to practice what is in your bag can you name almost every item in your bag that you is there purposely <laughs> yeah always have a lacrosse ball to kind of get in if whatever if i have problems with my shoulder i have a, a metal roller like the you know the stick mm. but it's metal and that thing's great and i have a obviously some sort of electrolyte and also water 
and massage gun. I think that's, oh, and like bands, bands for shoulder and um, that go around your knees. That's about it, I guess. The towel. What do you think is in your warm up routine? Yeah, I know Todd seemed to be pretty religious. Uh, you know, Hayden goes, he gets after it. And you can tell, like, once he started, you know, you, you don't yeah. want to be the guy that stops him. But in general, what do you say? Do you roll and then start and then start getting blood flow and jogging? Or do you jog, get blood flow, and then start rolling? And then some DROMs? How do you warm up yourself? Uh, I hated warming up. It was the worst. That or putting sunscreen on is the two worst things of, of the sport. Like I hated both, but I was pretty consistent with putting band around my knee, doing those like, you know, lateral walks and things with that. And then I kind of went on and off with a shoulder band, but basically just moving around and getting some kind of dynamic movement going and try to break a sweat. Basically, I'm I'm the the worst person to ask about a warm up. It's just I hate it. (laughs) Well, maybe there's a secret because there weren't too many. You know, long-term injuries for you. I know you've gotten banged up a couple times, but you're healthy. I'm pretty lucky. Yeah, pretty lucky, yeah. Yeah. Nice. I have a question that might be sensitive, so you can answer it or not, but I want to know the actual story. The This is, this is bringing it back. But, okay. uh, Sean, when you moved from Sean to Nick, was it the case where, you know, you had recovered from an injury, you're pretty frustrated, and then... Sean maybe wasn't doing his part in terms of training hard or he showed up late to a practice and you just made a phone call. How was that process? That thought process. I mean, all those are like some part of reality of what happened, but I tore my internal oblique Mm. and I was out. It was just 2015. So it's an Olympic qualifying year and I was out for two months and I missed like the meat of the season, world champs or like most of the grand slams. And I told Sean, I was like, hey, man, stay on the world tour, stay in shape or whatever. Grab either Ryan Doherty or Stafford Slick. I think he grabbed Stafford. And after two tournaments, he came back to L.A. He's like, oh, my knee's been bugging me. I'm just going to rehab here. So come to find out the next weekend he was playing a drunk draw at 8th Street in Hermosa. And, <laughs> and I'm like busting i'm busting my ass to get back out there because we need finishes you know like i hired a a guy that was going to a few times a week to get me back in shape and and right around the same time like like nick reached out to me actually nick reached out to me right after tokyo we had a grand slam in tokyo and we got a ninth there and i was just like frustrated with him and, and nick i know nick he's that guy's a workhorse and I knew that I never would have to deal with that type of issue mm. with him. And at the same time, I always pictured myself ending my career with Nick, uh, like starting and ending it. And I was like, oh, this is, I felt like this was a good time to jump ship. And there was also like, there was one practice where we had a 10 o'clock practice and he showed up like 30 minutes late. And I was like, dude, like 30 minutes late. Like, he's like, oh man, sorry, I was walking the court oh, we played golf this morning we were, i was walking the course and i was like come on <laughs> like if people are waiting for you you know like i was kind of frustrated and then he complained about his knee the whole whole practice and i was like well you think walking the course and playing golf had something to do with 
your knee being uh, bugging you? Mm. And he was like, ah, I don't know. And uh, I was like, ah, come on, man. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Be a professional, you know, you know, it's tough. Like, just be... He's been in it so long and he, he, he had that young, he was just able to do it from the start. Yeah. He was able to do it. So yeah. his mentors were <laughs> Rosie's Raiders, you know, and right. it's like, those are mentors that'll pull you in. And it's part of it says to me like, Hey, you know, surround yourself with the right people. And then the other part of it says, listen, your partner needs to have faith in you because there's little like chips in confidence that I think every partnership feels. And yeah. one of you have to choose your places where your partner can never question X about you. And for you, yeah. for Nick, that was how hard Nick was always working, how much dedication he had to like living the athlete life and, and being yeah. a true hardworking, hardcore teammate. And I think people can really, really learn from that. Juniors, adults, people sure. need you to show up, whether it's sport, whether it's family, whether it's work, they need to rely on the fact that you're doing your part at a hundred percent. And even if you can't do it like you don't have the ability that you are putting the hundred percent effort at it right right and then yeah i mean that was really well said and sean was the type of guy that was he probably i would say is the best athlete i've ever seen on a on a volleyball court like he was incredible his quads are like this big and never really lifted you know like he was just gifted with all these natural abilities so like if you were never really had to work hard at, you know, something, it's just God given talent. And then like we were both 35 in 2015. So like if you're not lifting and rolling out and stretching and those God given talents are slowly going to diminish. Right. And if you do all things in that back of the ladder, then say someone who doesn't do all um, the lifting and stuff their hill is a little more steeper, right? And you want a, a flatter back part of your career hill or, or whatever you want to call it. Flat, flatten the curve. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there you go, yeah. <laughs> okay, one last question. I know you got to run the from Crystal from our Complete Player Program. She asks, okay. how do you stay mentally in the game when you feel like your partner has checked out? Oh, that's a good question. And being a good partner is a skill in like passing and setting and probably one of my weakest skills as a beach volleyball player i was always like you take care of your uh, your job i'll take care of mine don't worry about me and um, which was kind of silly now that i think about it like we were a team you know like if my partner was struggling like you think okay let's see if how i could get him going a little bit or if he's checked out like see if I could get him back into it, but I never was good at that, and probably still aren't. Isn't I'm probably not very good. It's still like I never learned how to be a good partner. I guess I will say personally, it's so much fun. It was so much fun seeing you play together with Nick again, and hearing his like nicknames for you, hearing him call call you by your gaming nickname, yeah. <laughs> and. Like he got you smiling and laughing on court in a lot of situations. And to me, it was like there was, it looked like you were reinvigorated. And I felt that the world was in even more trouble once I started seeing 
feeling like you were having fun. I don't know if you weren't having fun. You know, some people just have that demeanor. Yeah. But it, it looked like you were really thoroughly enjoying yourself on court, hanging out with Nick and getting to do that with best bud is at some special. At some point. And at some point, it just drove me nuts. <laughs> best friends do that, man. <laughs> yeah. I'd rather get kicked in the teeth sometimes and play volleyball with them. That's how I felt. I was like, oh, my God, please. Just get this thing over with. Hopefully we win. Let's try to get it over quickly. But, um, yeah, he's a character. Yeah, he is. Well, all right. Do you have any sort of parting... You can share any links, any opportunities that you're doing, any way for anyone to reach out, websites, so that you can get on your road. Sure. If you're interested in our camps, the clinics, I mean, classes, philinapril.com. And then, I don't know, I guess follow me on Instagram at phildahlhauser. I have a whole bunch of old videos uh, that my dad recorded, all our old matches that I'm slowly going through and like cutting them up a little bit. And, kind of posting the highlights. So if you're interested in that, follow me at Phil Dahlhauser. Nice. And Phil on April.com. And of course you can probably look up Phil Dahlhauser Beach Volleyball Academy in Orlando to yeah. see if uh, maybe yeah. somebody can get some training from you or join your classes. Yep. Thanks for that. Awesome. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Sure. Thanks Good for having Jen. me. Hopefully she's feeling better and go say hi to the kids. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks. See ya. Bye. Bye. Cool. Complete player members, we're going to stick around and we'll do a little bit of our session. And you guys can give me some feedback. So, for everybody listening, if this podcast is not over and we decide to leave this in, now I'm just going to go through kind of the last 15 minutes that we normally go through with our complete player program members. We have two meetings a week. They are optional meetings, but they add the opportunity for all of our players to ask us coaches and pro players and former pro players questions about their technique, about their diet, about their workout programs, so that we can customize and adjust their different workout programs, techniques, strategies, and gameplay. Along with those two meetings, they're also able to post their videos and clips on our private Facebook group where within 24 hours they get coaching through our commentary section from our staff of coaches. And of course they get our entire course collection and library, which has 53 beach volleyball practice plans, a full course for every skill. And it's pretty cool to see all of the results and new high finishes in that group. So for you guys, now that it's just us, Let's talk. You guys can ask me questions about any of your games. I know that we are in Ultimate Defender right now. I'm not going to leave you on camera. I'm going to give you you guys your drill and tutorial homework for Thursday's meeting. But I want to know if you guys have any specific questions related to the courses or any big wins from this weekend, because I know that your homework, isn't it interesting that the last two people we had on the podcast follow the exact same homework? that we gave you this weekend. So our complete player program members, they had to play at minimum a complete set of volleyball using only line blocks to try to fix their strategies, get them to focus on how to solve one problem instead of flipping the entire board, right? And we had Triborn 
who said that in his championship in Manhattan Beach, he blocked line more than nine out of 10 times. And Phil Dahlhauser saying he blocked line for seven years, more than nine out of 10 times. So this is something that works, can work well. And I want to hear what your guys' experience was this weekend with only blocking line. And if you guys have any other questions about any of the drills, any of the videos, or just separate questions from your tournaments and training this weekend. So let's get into it. You guys are more than welcome to all turn your mics on if you don't have any noise in the background. I see Jesus in there says, I wish I was into the strength training during the off season. What can I do to still do strength training and play volleyball three times a week? Any workout programs you recommend? Jesus, you signed up for that workout program. It is a 60 day max vertical. At this point, what you want to do if you're playing three times a week, you have the option to lift twice a week or lift three times a week and play at the same on the same days that you're playing volleyball because you do need recovery. You have to have those days where it's complete rest that you're allowing your body to repair. So more and more, the people who only have kind of three days, we're asking them to find a way to modify our 60 day max vertical program, use the workouts in there, but if you only have time to visit the courts or the gym, go visit the courts, but then take the workouts from the 60 max vertical and use the modifications that I give with the bands or with the dumbbells or just the body weight stuff instead of the weights. Those videos and recommendations are in there. Find a way to incorporate all of the workouts or at least part of the workouts into your warmup, right? The conditioning will come in game, but you also have to know what it's like to move at full speed. You have to test your body at full speed. So even though in those videos in the 60 max program, I'm saying, Hey, you know, you'll get some of your conditioning by playing. You still should reserve some sprints or all out maximum bursts. You have to reserve a time for that because it's interesting that most of our jumps in beach volleyball are not at hundred percent. They're not even at 90%. Sometimes they're at about 85, 80, 85, and sometimes less because it's difficult to get to the ball. Same thing with sprints. You might have one fast step, but it's not with the intent of moving as fast as possible. So we have to add that to our training. So if you're going to just do a beach day, show up early or stay late. Make sure that you're doing the DROMs from the program. Make sure that you're doing the band work and the core work from the program. That should be all part of your warm up, And mm -hmm. then see if you can add some of the single leg strength that we show in the early videos and, and the modifications of those workouts. And then maybe your two hour session turns into a two hours and 40 minute session. But in those two hours and 40 minutes, you've done everything you need to be operating at an extremely high level. Okay. Welcome, Jesus. Anybody else? I understand some of you can't use your mics. So I'm reading from Jordan here. Jordan, do you have... Can you do your microphone or is it just through the chat? I can indeed. Cool. So uh, tell me about your question. Uh, it wasn't really a question. It was just sort of a statement on the line blocking that you were asking for some feedback on. So I've mostly sort of exclusively blocked line sort of recently been able to convince some of my friends it's, you know, worthwhile having a blocker net protector mm -hmm. to protect certain situations in the game. So I wouldn't say I'm too experienced in 
in blocking. I'm, I would probably usually be, be the defender as part of my team um, anyway. But for me, it's been trying to get into my defensive base position and not guessing where the opponent's going to shoot. If I have that stable base, I can probably get to 80, 90% of balls. Nice. Um, it's once I, it's once I start guessing, then I'm like, ah, my footwork. I, if I just kept my footwork there and stayed balanced and ready, I could have picked that ball up. That's definitely my been my observation. Cool. Are you incorporating the crossover footwork into your warmups? I have been actually a little bit. Yeah, just sitting in that cross and then do a, one to the high line and one to the cut short. Yeah. Perfect. I think from what I've seen, when I see players warm up and they start their match, but they haven't dove yet, they haven't mm. attempted a sprint yet, they're mm. not ready to play the game. If you haven't taught your body before you start playing or you haven't showed it what your maximum speed is for that day, it will set its own limit. It's kind of like yeah, like when they tell you your battery in your phone or your computer, like if you don't charge it all the way, eventually it just learns that it has a new lower maximum capacity, right? Mm. So you want to either, you know, whatever you want to use a metaphor on the front end or the back end, you either want to drain the battery the entire time or, or supercharge it up, right? But you have to show before you play, you have to show your body what an all out attempt at a max vertical jump is. And you should be, <laughs> you should be warm, should have the DROMs for that. And yeah. you should have an all out attempt at a couple of sprints, you know, or a couple of block appeals. But if you operate for the full warm up at 70 to 80%, just to get your blood flowing, and you never prime your nervous system to operate at max speed, then yikes, you're going to be in trouble for the first half. And that's when everybody says, oh, you know, it usually takes me a game to warm up. Like, what? <laughs> destroying your own game okay so you're having a good experience with it then jordan trying to yeah i think so it's just learning the to do the basics i guess the correct footwork staying low not guessing before the the opponent sort of shoot yeah those those sort of things trying to really solidify them in my in my game at the moment mm. when you're back there playing defense in the diagonal what do you think your mind turns to in terms of worry? Do you think that you're more worried about the high line shot, more worried about the hard cross, or more worried about the cut shot? I think if I hadn't seen a few shots yet, it would probably be the the high line is where where my body would want to want to go to. And I've seen when I've been split blocking, my partner does the same thing. I might like go up for the block or maybe peel and my partner might start already moving over to cover the high line and then that cut is just wide open i think there's one kind of answer to that that you can attempt to play with and if you start your defense deep and wide there is a good opportunity and i think tries podcast triborn his podcast is on our yep. most recent youtube videos right now but he was playing with that too starting wider and deeper and then you can find yourself going from there into your true defensive position. Right. Okay. So that you have that kind of forward momentum and that wide position, maybe not the deep position, but the wide position might tell somebody not to hit a cut shot. And then you're ready for the hard cross. 
but then you also yeah. have the momentum and the forward moving action where you can easily get to the to the high line and you don't necessarily have to think about it your movement could take care of that and your positioning to, could take care of that to where you can read but your body is actually primed to chase it better mm-hmm. yeah okay. so maybe consider starting a little bit wider yeah you're there and have that one step in get balanced yeah go watch it go <laughs> yeah and then see if they hit some cut shots and uh, you know if yeah. they don't then you know that that you've turned them off from that mm. cool. okay cool thanks sure. thank you thank you glad you like it hey mark yeah so crystal so i'm running into a couple of issues with my partner i have two different partners depending on the day or that we're in we play competitive and the people we've played with this week and last week actually are not what I would call standard attackers. So they're roughly five, six, maybe five, 10. Mm-hmm. And I still have my partner going up to block and when they should be peeling. So they're crucial conversations that we're having, but what's happening is one, they either choose not to peel, two, they choose to do a different call, but not call it, or they'll, on the peel, they'll touch the ball and then they send it out where I was positioned and I would have had it. So what kind of conversations should I be having with my partner to better communicate what needs to happen in those moments or? You're playing at the double, double, uh, like a double a level, right? Chris, here's one idea that you can try. Draw a line five, six feet from the net. And when you're playing people who are five, six and they can't, thump the ball there's really no reason to ever be in front of that five foot line agreed right because if an overset comes then you'd want to play it you know it's kind of rare that an overset is just something that you want to detonate in it's usually not in the perfect spot so you have the chance to use three touches and have control instead of just hitting it then you know the caveat is if you see that something's wide open and you can control it but I feel like a lot of players get stuck on overpasses and they become predictable and it's not ideal where they should just play all three touches and reestablish control or play on two so that you have a legit controlled attack. My advice would be draw that five, six foot line or leave your flip flop kind of outside the court and say, we're never going to be in front of this line defensively. Right. You know, even that overset, you still move easily into it. Right, exactly. It's in front of you. And then you are going to need to say, take left, take right, or use the butt taps that we talk about later in the Ultimate Defender Mm -hmm. course. Where we do that a lot, but it's not something that has been timed correctly for those moments recently. So they have worked in the past. It's just a timing issue now where I think they're second guessing what they're and what side and so it's just kind of running a little late which kind of puts us in a defensive position that's not ideal mm. yeah my uh people usually wait to see the pass the set mm-hmm. and then they make a call and it's too late by that time so when you show the new block sign the transition block sign it should be as soon as you think the ball this is the key word as soon as you think the ball might get dug okay that's when you start asking for where your blocker is telling them which side of the court to take 
or using the butt taps. Okay. Right. If you're the deep player, say, where are you? Where are you? Or say, take left, take left. Okay. You know, awesome. and then you can do the same thing as, as a blocker. If you want to be the vocal commander on your team. Right. Awesome. Thanks. Welcome. Brian, I saw you wrote something here. Do you want to come on the mic? He says he always blocks line and throw a few other blocks in to mix it up. I think it gives us the best chance to side out. So this is something that I, I kind of want to get away from, Brian. I don't want you to think we need to throw other signs in order to mix it up. We need different defensive play calls to mix it up. We have to have intent, right? There's scenarios that I'm trying to bring up in my mind where you try different things, but you're not measuring them and there's not a reason why you're trying. And so there's no like result that you can get or measure and no reason why you did it. For example, you'll see people throw two line blocks, right? They'll throw a line block for the right side, line block for the left side. Their partner will miss the serve and then they side out. And then on the very next play, right? So let's say the other team misses the serve. Then on the very next play, we have a different defensive call. That to me shows immediately that there was no reasoning or intent behind the defensive play calls. Because if I give a play call, it's because there's a reason. It's because I think I want to defend the line, or I think, you know, I want to bring them into a hard cross at my defender, right? So that's why I called the line. But then we missed the serve, so we didn't get to implement it. Then they missed the serve. So we're in the exact same spot, trying to test the same theory, or we should be, trying to get the same results because we think that this is going to happen. And then we change a play call, all right? And that's that you have to get away from that. So don't change your defensive signs or play calls just to mix it up. Call it because you're guessing, assuming, or testing that this player will want to do this at this moment. And if it's a guess and it has reasons or a hypothesis, then that's a good thing to do. But if you just change to change, you're not going to progress in your game and you're not going to understand why that play call worked against that player. So then it won't be a repeatable process, won't be a repeatable match against that opponent or similar opponents to the person you're playing. Okay, so let's make sure that we have intent and it's not mix it up. And if you give a play call and then there are two missed serves and you have a different play call, something went terribly wrong with your game strategy. Okay, Nicole, can you get on the mic and ask a question? Yeah. So was wondering when I'm blocking line, mm -hmm. how much room behind me am I responsible for like reaching back and grabbing all of or it? To the, okay. So like if somebody dinks it like right over me, mm -hmm. I should reach back and get that. hundred percent. I'm asking. Okay. Yeah. This is kind of a common question. Like whose ball is that? Whose ball is that? The answer is if you see it and you can get it, you go for it. And if you're currently not going for it, you have to find a way to get yourself to go for it. There are high line shots that I've seen people after blocking, and this is at a high level, this is at a, like a top, top seven or eight in the AVP, like this type of blocker. But the high line landed just behind half court. And after blocking, the blocker landed crunched down into the ground, got super low and shot out, right? 
So by landing in that like kind of wide squat and then getting low and then powering off of that one leg, you're already across half court. And if you can cover more than a quarter of the court after blocking your defender's job, they're going to get so much better, right? So there is no whose ball, your ball, my ball. We all should get out of that mentality. And instead we should be in our team has to get this no matter what, right? And if my partner saw something different or they were in a different spot or they took a misstep or tripped and I'm not going, well, then we automatically lost the point. But if they're going for it and I'm going for it, great. Then it's just up to somebody to bark louder or touch the ball. And so long as it comes up, we have a chance. But once it hits the ground, we have zero chance. So for all of you blockers out there, you have to learn how to land and pursue that ball around you that gets dinked because you should be at minimum. If you're at the antenna, like strictly at the antenna, at the net, you have to cover that entire front quarter of the court, right? And you have to figure out how to do it. And it's usually, the problem is people land pretty off balance and then they don't love the mobility getting dropping low. So they don't learn and I'm talking, there are pro blockers that haven't learned this skill to land and completely sink all the way down, let that butt drop all the way down, and then shoot out all in one motion. But instead, people land in that stiff high squat or quarter squat, and then there's no way that they can run and then get low to the ball. So if you can visualize it with me, it's trying to block. Then when you're coming down to land, you get your butt below your knees all in one motion. And then you swoop and you fire out into a dive. It's not jump, land, run and dive. Two very different movements. And I, and I hope that visual is clear without being able to see it, but it is a tremendous play. And when you see guys like uh, Cantor, Loziak, Samoylovs and Smedins, and Stafford Slick, I know has made this play a lot Try is great at covering behind himself. These are elite level plays, but you don't need to be an elite level player to do it. You just have to learn how to make that play. And sometimes it comes from landing too stiff instead of sinking with the landing and then firing out. Gotcha. Thank you. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is how do I work on that? Because that's a big shift from indoor for me is the whole reaching back thing. I was taught strictly not to do that ever. So yeah, no, which is also crazy to me. You know, they say that, but it's because your defender should be moving forward at that. But again, like even with my players in indoor, I was like, hey, if you can get it, get it. Learn how to control it. Unless somebody behind you is screaming mine, your team still has a responsibility to take care of that ball. And if you can get good at those weird plays, like you reach back behind you with one arm or a flipper and you can make the ball go up above the top of the antenna so someone can get their hands on it, that's a great dig. And you don't know who's behind you. You know, and that's the reason they, they always think that that player should be moving forward so they should have the better opportunity to make a controlled play. And yes, theoretically, they should. But in the moment, they might not be there. And if you don't stick a limb out, that ball's hitting the ground. So I always pursue every ball at maximum while telling my partner to go for it. Does that make sense? Like I'm going for it. And then I'm saying, yours, 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 yours. 
I'm still there in case they can't, or in case I witness them in that split second, not pursuing the ball, then I'm already on my way, you know, but there are certain balls that I want them to take, but I'll try to be there for them if I can't get there. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. You're welcome. Great to see some highlight reels of blocker landing low and picking up some high line shots. Maybe I'll give you guys some homework. <laughs> Everybody's got to watch matches until they find that play reaching back and examples where blockers don't. You'll be able to see that a lot. Like if you look at the, the recent AVP that was in Virginia Beach, then you might be able to see some blockers who don't know how to turn or their instinct is not to turn and pursue. When you say it and when you experience it, you'll start seeing it more and more saying like, you have to cover that space behind you. And then when you're blocking, sometimes if you're the player that doesn't know how to do this landing and then dive and then pursue, you start thinking mentally, well, that's impossible. It's not my ball. And we have to turn that impossible mindset into, I have to, it's not impossible. I have to. Right. That's a a better mentality to have for that specific play. You'll save a lot. And if you watch the Norwegian guys, these are two players that go after every ball every time, you know, and and they're world champions for a reason. Who was just about to get on the mic? Lee, go ahead. Hey, Mark. Thank you. Hey, uh, yeah. One comment. Hey, that sky ball against Drost and Frischman where it came one inch from the net. That was insane. (laughs) That was incredible, man. Yeah. And I just want to make a confirmation on when we're serving and I usually block, no matter if the other team can bang or not, you still want to be up at the net, ready for the one over or the two, right? And then peel 100% of the time. Okay. And when I I say at the net, this is very dependent on what type of athlete you are, how high you are, how tall you are, how high you jump. And another part of the equation is what type of athletes are on the other side of the net, Mm -hmm. right? Because- Let's say that you're six, nine and you have a 40 inch vertical, right? But you're playing against two, five, two girls on a men's net. There's no way you should be blocking them. Even though you can get your nipples up over the net. Great. It's not worth it for you to jump because those players could never hit down on you. So you'll get more touches there. So there's two factors. And so when we say, you know, when you're looking at yourself as an athlete, your teammate as an athlete, and then the others and saying like, okay, what are the heights? Can I get over the net? Okay. If I can, maybe I should say block. Now my second question is, can they get their heads over the net and pound? If the answer is yes. All right. Then we should have a blocker up there. If the answer to either of the first two questions is no, then we shouldn't have a blocker up there. And that's when we go for the, we call it like the Rover position Mm -hmm. or the Mm -hmm. net protector instead of a blocker. And that's when I was telling Crystal, we're saying hover around that 10 to six foot area where you can't even reach the net. But you're at least close enough to comfortably cover that. And then you're only a step and a half away from your true defensive position. Are you in the middle at that point if you're hovering or are you on one side or the other? So where is the setter aiming? Mm. That's the position that you should be in as a blocker, right? A lot of people make that mistake where let's say that we're facing the net, right? You and me are facing the net Mm -hmm. and Over on the other side, they're about to set their left side. So they're about to set our right hands, Mm -hmm. but I have a diagonal block called. So I stay in the middle of the court, even though they're about to set towards the antenna, and then I peel into my diagonal. Mm -hmm. Now I'm nowhere near where the play is supposed to happen. So my whole job as a net protector 
I've now had to leave that because I'm so concerned with dropping into that diagonal defense. And that's a nightmare. And that's why at our camps, clinics, classes, and in this course, the ultimate defender course, we're saying, if you're a net protecting team, that means that you're not playing with blockers or you don't have to play with blockers for certain matches. You always move as if you were a line blocker, but you're not blocking, right? So you move with the plate and then you drop straight back. We're not going to do diagonal peels. So nobody should call cross if you don't have a blocker, unless it's a very specific scenario that we're not going to get into right now because it doesn't happen often enough, right? You're going to miss those oversets when you decide to peel cross or give that cross call and you know that you're peeling anyway. Okay. Okay. So yeah, I think I understand. So in that scenario, the rover, well, I mean, I'm 6'3 and and can block. So, but yeah, you would trace them out to the pin on the left side and then your defender would obviously shift on to the left side for the cross. Yes. You would still be off the net a little bit if they're not banging exactly and kind of this in between. Okay. Yeah, just that rover position chill just to, until you make sure, you know, you right. could even, you could honestly even be at like half court. So mm. long as you've got that forward lean and your body's intense and it's ready to run forward or run backwards. So you get into that surfer position more than your chest facing the net. Yep. You That's helped that. actually quite a bit. Great. And it's a faster move, right? And sometimes yes. you don't need the crossover plant plant. All you have to do is like push off of that right leg and mm. step backwards and it's, and it can be a quicker, more comfortable move. But yeah, if you're peeling or you know that you're not blocking everybody, there is no right side, there is no left side, and there is no cross peeling. Just make sure that the blocker flows and waits in the position where the play is going to develop. That means that where the setter is going to try to aim you're never going to have a, a, a hitter on the right side of the court and the setter accidentally set the left antenna, right? right? Unless this is a complete beginner's game, in which case you should be able to handle that anyway. And at mm-hmm. that point, so you want to flow, have that net protector flow with the play or where the play is going to be, and then drop back parallel along the, the sideline that the hitter is on. Makes sense. That makes sense. Thank you, Mark. Well. All right, guys, this was a <laughs> hour and 45 minute meeting about, I want you guys to really go onto the posts in the private Facebook group. And I want to hear your very honest opinions about what you thought of this format as one lesson per week. Did you enjoy being here for the live podcast and then being able to ask that person a question? Or would you prefer us to go back to where we're showing the videos from the course and we review and do a Q&A there? Or, or is, was this just cool as a once in a while type, like substitute teacher type fun? So if you guys could share with me in the group, all of your feedback and opinions, that would be fantastic. I want to hear it. We're continually, you know, I'm continually working to make this program great for you, great for everybody. And trying to grow it and, and give you guys results. So that's where we want out of it from me for everybody who is listening at home to the recorded version of this podcast. I want to thank you for your attention. Remember we are at betteratbeach.com. You just saw an example of what our meetings are like for our coaching program. We also do have private one-on-one mentorship. Uh, if you want to be one of the 12 athletes that either me, we have two chances, me or Brandon work personally with 
for a full year. You don't have to sign up for a full year. It can be month by month, but you can meet with us one-on-one. You need to get in touch with me. Uh, ask me about it. Probably the best way is, is at Mark Burick on Instagram. And you can be in one of my one-on-one groups where we're meeting with you one-on-one as we go through the courses. It's a little bit of a step up from our group meetings where you're just in that private Facebook group and then we're getting the group meetings. But if we want to dive into your full matches, into everything that you're doing with a ton of specificity and, and you want to work very closely uh, one-on-one, get my personal phone number and be able to have pretty much non-sub conversations. I'm willing to take on 12 athletes this year. I'm very excited about it. It won't be for everybody, but if you're wanting to invest in your game that much, then get in touch with me. If you have any questions about joining the complete player program, which you just saw an example of head to better at beach.com forward slash coaching better at beach.com forward slash coaching. That page should answer most of the questions. And then if you got any more questions, please, I'm inviting you. I'm currently inviting you to send me DMS direct messages on Instagram. I'm happy to answer those questions. And you could also get in touch with Brandon at joy beach VB. We have our camps Coming up, I don't know when this is going to air, but we have camps in October, November, December, January. We're scheduling ones for February and March. I hope they're not scheduled yet, but we might have a new resort coming up. And we've already got four spring clinics booked. So if you want to bring us to your hometown, your home facility, remember that you need a minimum of, I know, minimum of the equivalent of 12 people at 250 for the day. So that's a, basically a $3,000 commitment for one day of training. And that's three, two and a half hour sessions. You need legal access or the ability to rent from a legitimate facility or area for those courts. And 12 people or $3,000 would be what we need as the minimum promise to get us out there, flying there, uh, giving you your shirts, lanyards, swag, and an entire day of training. Obviously, the more people we get to sign up, the more coaches we can bring, but we've already booked four for the spring. So if you want to jump on that, or let's just say you got a court in your backyard and you know that you've got for diehards and you want to get that training, you want us to, to bring us out to your court for that, and you're willing to foot the bill, get in touch. We can do that too. Okay. Happy to do it. So camps are there, clinics are there, online coaching programs there. I don't know what more you need. If you loved this podcast, please share it with somebody. And I don't know how the ratings work on podcasts. I've never actually rated a podcast, but I do follow a bunch. If there's a place to rate it and you loved it, please give us a really cool rating. And if you have any comments or ideas or things that we should do or that you would like to see, of course, get in touch, either support at betteratbeach.com or you can DM me. I'll be happy to hear from you. Thank you guys so much. That is it. Here, Mark Burke with Better at Beach. We'll see you on the sand.